This episode of Sharing Life Lessons is sponsored by Unidragon. Are you looking for an amazing gift for your partner, family, your friends, your relatives, or your coworkers? Look no further. Unidragon wooden puzzles make gifts with a wow factor. Unidragon's puzzles are interesting for adults and children. The colorful puzzle designs are of the highest laser cut quality. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box and new puzzles are released every month. Unidragon's customers buy their puzzles again and again. To get a special 10% discount, go to www.unidragon.com and use coupon code LIFE10. Welcome to episode 69 of Sharing Life Lessons. This is season 7. We are one spirit, one soul, and together we are creating a library of stories and life lessons. I am your host Hamida and I want to bring you stories. Because stories matter, stories inspire, stories teach, and stories heal. Hello from Michigan. Listeners, I totally enjoy sharing aspects of my life with you through these episodes. Thus, I cannot help but share this life event with you as well. I am releasing this episode from Michigan as we are currently in the process of dropping our son, Avi, to college. He will be attending UMish, which is a solid 600 miles away from home. That's far. My sentiments are bittersweet. I know I will miss him super dearly because he is the funny one in our family. But I'm also happy for him. He is excited to start this new chapter of his life. And that is all that counts. By the way, the pre-roll in the beginning for the sponsor of this episode, Unidragon, is in Avi's voice. Before I start this episode, I want to once again remind my listeners that if you are enjoying sharing life lessons, you can become a monthly subscriber by going to www.avi.com anchor.fm and pressing the support button with the dollar sign to subscribe for any amount of your choice. You will also find this information in my show notes. I want to start today's episode with one of Rumi's quotes. This one is for Avi as he embarks on his new four-year college journey. It is also relevant to our discussion today. Quote, do not let the trials and tribulations of life make you bitter. Your challenges are creating you. Embrace them. End quote. Our guest for today is an HR professional. She has a story to tell that to some may feel far-fetched, but to others may be too close to home. And I thought it would be a good story to share on Sharing Life Lessons. So let's hear it. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Joy Sent. Joy, welcome to Sharing Life Lessons. Thank you so much for graciously accepting to be on the show. I want to let the audience know that the reason why Joy is on the show is because she put out a story on LinkedIn, which I happen to read. We are not connected with each other, but for some reason, I was able to see that story and I felt that story needs to be told. I contacted Joy and Joy accepted to be on the show because she mutually agrees that the story needs to be told. Right, Joy? Right, right. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Joy, please start us off by telling us something about yourself. So I am a wife. I am an Army veteran. I am a former federal civil servant. And currently, I am an HR professional. I am a person who finds 
joy in helping others, supporting and encouraging others, and trying to help remove barriers for other people so that they can do their best work and be their best selves. Lovely, lovely. Joy, I can't wait to hear the story more than what I've already read. So I know what I read was just the top of the iceberg, as they say. So please tell us your story. Just to give some background to the story that you're referring to, I did a LinkedIn post, which is the only social media site I'm actually on, by the way, to celebrate turning 45. And just briefly in that post, I mentioned some of the obstacles that I overcame to get to this age and just expressing my appreciation and trying to be encouraging to somebody else um, who may be dealing with challenges. Had no idea that that post would get the traction that it got. I think right now it's at like 18,000 responses, but I really was just doing it because it's part of what I would normally do just try to post something uplifting, encouraging. But again, there was something inside of me too that knew that somebody out there might take courage in hearing my story. So speaking of my story, it started 45 years ago. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, in a part of Brooklyn called Bedford-Stuyvesant, which back in those days was one of the rougher areas in Brooklyn. Right now it's getting gentrified. So it's kinder and gentler in some areas, Mm -hmm. Um, but not so much when I was growing up there. I am the youngest of three children and my parents were married. They had relocated to New York from North Carolina where they both were from. So my childhood is kind of spotty. Like I have some memories that sometimes I have to go back to my sister and say, was this actually my memory? Was this your experience? Did this even happen? (laughs) So there's some parts that are spotty, but I do remember growing up as a child in Brooklyn to two parents who at the time that I can earliest remember were both addicts. This was around the time when crack cocaine on the rise was becoming an epidemic in the inner cities and both of my parents had fallen victim to that. Now they were both still functioning addicts. My dad had a job and My mom was around. They were together. We were an air quotes family. What Um, was your dad doing, Joy? My dad at the time, I remember he worked for Con Edison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what his specific job was, but I remember he worked for Con Ed. My mom, I don't believe was working at the time. I just remember they were both crack addicts and alcoholics. So There was sporadic arguments. There was some instability occasionally just due to that situation because you didn't know if there would be money for bills or what situation might arise just from that activity going on in the house. So for a good portion of my childhood that I can remember, my sister, who is the middle child, Mm -hmm. was the one looking out for both myself and my brother. My oldest brother has a chromosomal abnormality that's kind of like Down syndrome, but not quite. So he can't speak and his growth was stunted. The three of us growing up in that situation with my sister in the middle, having to look out for us because the adults weren't always consistent and weren't necessarily always around, but again, still functioning addicts. There were several situations in my upbringing in New York where I can remember at one point we were robbed at gunpoint in our apartment My sister had come home from school and someone was waiting in the stairwell, barged in after her when she was coming in the door from school, tied us all up, 
Um, the thing that saved us is my dad came home. I remember my dad coming home and there was some kind of altercation and the person eventually just ran out of the mm. apartment. So thank goodness, none of us were harmed. If he took something, he took whatever he was going to take and got away. I remember another situation where as a young child, I was probably nine, maybe 10, where I and some friends were standing outside of the apartment building that was like four floors. And I guess there were some people getting high on the fourth floor in the hallway and someone broke out a window. So that window, the glass came down on me and my friend, cut her arm, cut me across the head. I just remember the outfit I had on that night. I'm outside by myself at night at mm -hmm. nine or 10. Mm -hmm. um, it was purple and I had on white socks and the little jelly shoes we used to wear back then, all covered in blood. And I just remember running upstairs to try to find one of my parents to take me to the hospital. So just thinking through those little instances that took place early in my childhood that I'm thankful for making it through. And then just thinking in general, we were out running about outside and playing with friends with not very much supervision. And thank goodness, none of us were harmed in any way. And that was my, my childhood up until around age 10. And at a, at a certain point around that time, my parents decided that they would relocate back to North Carolina. So I went from very urban environment in Brooklyn to mm -hmm. rural dirt road country of North Carolina. And of course their drug use continued in that transition. At a certain point, my parents separated. So from that time that we transitioned through me going through middle school and high school, still living in that environment of kind of uncertainty my dad was still working, but again, if there was money coming in, it wasn't a guarantee that it would stay in the house and go where it needed to go. One of them may come in and give us or give my sister some money and say, hold this for me, it's for the rent, it's for the electricity. But maybe three o'clock in the morning, they're coming back to say, give me that money that mm -hmm. I asked you to keep for me. And so there was that level of uncertainty, you might not have electricity, you might not have a consistent place to stay at any given moment. But again, even in that, we never got to the most dire situation where we were living on the street, but it might be a situation where we are at a house that I don't know the people, but we may be in a room there for a short period of time or in another place that may not have electricity and we have to hook up and borrow electricity from the next house so still that inconsistency and I remember thinking throughout that time that I just wanted to have normal parents I just want to have a normal life because in that environment you don't really get close to friends you're not bringing people over to your house because you don't know what they might see um, that you're embarrassed for them to see whether it's the condition of your house or if there's a situation that might happen with your parents or somebody else that you would be embarrassed for somebody to witness. So you had friends, but you kept them at arm's length because you had to keep that wall of privacy around you. Hey, Joy, I'm curious, were there any happy moments that you remember? I feel like there were. Again, I, I realized my memory is spotty. I think even through those moments of my upbringing, I don't remember feeling sad. I remember moments of disappointment because I knew parts of it were not normal. And of course, in those moments where my parents were arguing and it may get physical, of course, that was scary. But 
I remember in general feeling like I, I love my parents. Mm -hmm. There was never a moment where I was like, I, I hate my parents. I, I wish I had different parents. I just wish the situation were better. And there was always something in me that felt more sorry for them than angry with them because I knew whatever they were, were doing, of course, more so as an adult seeing it in hindsight was that it was part of how they were brought up and they were living out this pattern of whatever shortcomings came with their upbringing and they were doing the best they could with the tools they had as parents. Yeah. Um, so rural North Carolina decided as soon as I graduated high school or even before graduating high school that I was going to join the army because I saw that as a potential escape. I knew that we couldn't afford for me to go to college and I knew if I just stayed in that area, there weren't many opportunities for me or none that interested me. I didn't want to work at a local textile factory or whatever the other options were. No offense to those people who did, but I just felt like there's something different I should be doing. So I did the program where I enlisted early and started getting a sneak peek even while I was still in high school. And then my dad had to sign for me to enlist because I wasn't 18 years old yet in order to go off to basic training after high school. Mm -hmm. While I was away in basic training, my mom got worse. Once they divorced, she left and was really out in that life. And eventually she contracted HIV and succumbed to the complications from that and years of drug use. She was 49 when she passed away. So I was probably in my early 20s. She didn't get to come to my wedding. She got a chance to meet my husband, but we didn't have that opportunity for her to see me get married, to see me walk down the aisle. So I do regret not having that opportunity to have her in my life. But that's part of the, the challenge and the pain of being a child of an addict is you struggle watching them go through the struggle, but you can't save them because they have to come to the realization that they want something different. As much you're in it with them, you're suffering with them, but you can't help them get out of it. She died really young. Yes. Emotionally, did you feel like you were ready for it because you knew she was an addict and at some point something like this was inevitable or you still were hopeful that she would change and she would live into the ripe old age? I think I went back and forth between both. So you, in some ways you try to brace yourself that it's a possibility just because of the lifestyle they're living. And I think it might have been even more of a stark reality for me because they were a period of time where I didn't see her on a regular basis. So you have the image of what they looked like the last time you saw them. And then when I would see her again and she lost so much weight and didn't look like the person that you remembered, that's a shock within itself. And I think when she was actually hospitalized before she passed away, we had gone to see her. I took my husband with me, my sister and I were there. She was kind of joking and giving my husband a hard time. And then we had gone and got her some stuff from the gift shop, bought her little angel mm -hmm. and some balloons and took it to her room. And my sister and I had left. I don't know if we went to get something to eat. Or we went to do something and got the call from the hospital that she had passed away while we were out. So on one hand, 
you're like, okay, you're praying and hoping that she gets better. But then on the other hand, you know, it's a possibility, but I was not expecting during that visit Mm. that that would be the last time I would see her and that it would happen suddenly, but not, not suddenly because it was years that kind of took a toll on her. So it was hard. It was painful. But then there was that part of me that was like, okay, she can rest now because she's been in the streets all these years and she's just been going and going and trying to fill whatever boy she's trying to fill. So now she can rest. Mm. Um, Such a good way of looking at it, even in this situation. Yes. So transitioning from there, my dad was still using and throughout this time, still have a relationship with my dad. He's always been my dad. He's always been there, whether he was fully himself or not, whatever, whatever we could get of him, we were happy to get. So again, in hindsight, I'm still looking at all these situations that were not ideal, but then I think, okay, we were never like physically abused. We were never living on the street. We weren't intentionally neglected. So I'm trying to think of the positives even in this story and just thankful for the parts of my parents that I did have and did remember even though they weren't fully the parents that we would have hoped to have when we compared ourselves to other kids growing up. So you knew for sure that they both loved you, no matter what they loved you. Yes. And in their way, based on how they were capable of, yes, I, I did know that. I still know that to this day. I do think that a part of growing up as a child of an addict, you don't realize, of course, until later, how those aspects of your childhood carry over into adulthood and things you do and how you think and operate impacts you as an adult. I think today my dad and I have a relationship and it's about as good as it can be considering. I feel there's still parts of his past that he has to deal with, but I love him. And eventually years later, he got treatment and he was able to stop using drugs. He's a Vietnam vet. He went through post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. um, and dealing with all of his own issues. I think he's 71 or 72. I'm just thankful that he's still here. I would have never thought that he would have lived um, this long considering all that he's been through. And is he clean to date? Yes, yes. Excellent. He was able to remarry, although he lost his second wife, but he was able to remarry and kind of get a chance to try to do it right. So I'm thankful that he was able, even in his older age, to have some moments of enjoyment with clarity compared to what we lived through growing up. My sister and brother are doing well. They live in North Carolina still. And again, just thankful that either my sister or I went down either the path of drug use or other things that we could have turned to as coping mechanisms. And I'm thankful for my sister's strength of trying to keep us together and watch over us as the middle child in all this chaos and confusion and dysfunction. Sometimes when people ask me, like when I mention parts of my story, because you have lived it, you don't really realize sometimes how crazy things sound that you say like I will nonchalantly talk about things that happen and my husband is like what Mm. do you realize how amazing that story is do you realize how blessed you are to have come through what you've come through 
And then I'm like, yeah, but that was life. That was what we knew. And again, with so many things, it's, it's not until in hindsight, you look back and are like, wow, I'm still here and things could have gone so many different ways. And I know of so many stories of people who had my same start, mm-hmm. who have not had the same end result as I have had. So I think that was a big motivator for me to do that post and just to remind myself, but again, to give a glimpse of hope to someone else. And I, I do want to be clear that it's not to oversimplify my story. People say, well, I did it and you should be able to do it too. And pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it together. That's not the message that I want to give because again, we all have a story. We all have our own path and my path may not be your path. My point was just to hopefully be a source of encouragement to someone else to see what is possible. Doesn't mean that you had to follow the path that I took. It doesn't mean that my path was all roses and daisies and rainbows. Because it clearly wasn't. Right. But trying to find those little nuggets of things you can be appreciative about because it's so easy. And I've had moments where you can get really sad and depressed and discouraged and focus on what you don't have and focus on what you wish um, things would be like. And I choose and continue to choose not to stay there. So that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that it's not okay if you feel those feelings. It's okay to feel those feelings and acknowledge how you feel. But if at all possible, don't stay in that place and try to find someone or something to be a support and encouragement, whether that's therapy, whether that's a friend to talk to, family, your spirituality. I know that is what has helped me through um, the years. So I talked about Army. I joined the army, was in the army for about six years. And then I got out of 2000 because I met my husband in the army and wanted to get married. And I wanted to have some level of certainty of where I might be in the world and wanted to stay with him. And then I became a civil servant working in national security policy. I was blessed to transition from the military. So one week, Friday, I was in uniform. The next week, I was able to do the same work just now as a civilian. I remember starting out in the army thinking that I wanted to be a civilian. The civilian grades in the government go up to 15. And I was just glad to get a government job after I'd gotten out of the military. I was able to start out in the government as a GS-12, which again is not a common feat to even get in the federal government, much less to be able to start at that level and was able to progress within that field as one of few minorities and few women in the intelligence and security arena within the government. It's usually a white male, older white male dominated community. Mm. And so I was able to progress through the ranks over the years to be GS-15. So I started as a soldier at that organization in Virginia and ended up when I left the army being the person in charge of the entire Department of the Army's um, security worldwide. And again, it's not till in hindsight, I was like, I did that? Mm -hmm. Because in the moment, that's your natural progression. That's just what you do. And now in hindsight, I was like, wow, I was the first Black woman in that role and probably the youngest, but you don't really take it in and appreciate it until somebody else points it out or you had time to. So I had progressed that far, but I had gotten to the point I was working in the Pentagon and I started to feel like I was further removed from the parts of the work that I initially liked. So around 2015, 
I was getting to the point where Sunday night, you're like, I got to go back into work tomorrow morning. I got to do this again. You feel that heaviness. And I just kept feeling I'm supposed to be doing something else, but I don't know what it is. And I was doing all these assessments and talking to people. And what do you think? And people would be like, well, what's your passion? I don't know what my passion is. What are you good at? I don't really know. I just know I'm supposed to be doing something different. So long story short, I talked to my husband. I was like, I think I want to leave the government. He was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's just solid, secure, stable government job. You've gotten to the GS 15 level and you want to leave because you feel like you should be doing something else. And I was like, yeah, I don't know how to explain it but that's what it is. So I ultimately decided to leave in December of 2016, put in my resignation. My employees were like, did you win the lottery? I was like, no, I didn't win the lottery. I don't have a job to go to. I don't know what I'm going to do, Okay. but I'm just leaving the government. So I left, I was at home for three months, redoing closets. And I had gone to like volunteer at the military hospital. Then I ran into a friend who was working in HR I knew I like to help people and be of service to people. So I said, well, maybe I can try my hand at HR. So she was working in hospitality and said she needed an assistant. So I said, sure, I'll come try it out. So I went from six-figure salary to making $16 an hour as her mm -hmm. HR assistant and just kind of getting to know some parts of operational HR, working in a hotel, but quickly realized that, okay, we're both still in manager mode. I'm still in leader mode, but I'm your assistant. And we might eventually start clashing. So I gave her like two months notice because she was getting married and preparing for her wedding and her honeymoon. So I said, I'll stay through all that. So I don't leave you high and dry. I'm giving you 60 days notice that I think I'm going to look for something else. And so the corporate HR found out that I was planning to leave and said, hey, we have this managerial position that's opening. Would you try your hand at that? And I was like, sure, but I'm still learning HR, but if you're willing to take a chance on me, I'll try my hand at it. And I did. So I became the HR manager over five hotels in an area in Virginia and did that for a few months. And then my boss came back to me and said, hey, I need a number two at corporate. So this was all within a year. And I said, but I'm still learning HR. And you have this whole cadre of HR people who have been in HR 10, 12 years. Why me? Mm -hmm. I need you. I know you can do it. I want you to do it. I'm like, okay, if you want to take a chance on me, try my hand at that. So I did that. And then she said, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant and I'm going to go on maternity leave as soon as you start this job. So I took on that role successfully, I would say, considering the circumstances and did that for several years and then transition to my current role, which I consider to be like a marriage between my former life in national security policy and my new career in HR, because it's working with an organization that works with the government. When I look back on my journey, I personally feel because I, I do believe in God and I can see his hand over every part of my journey. There wasn't a job that I would think I want to work in that building one day. Like I, I wanted to work in the Pentagon. I wanted to work downtown DC. Everywhere that I thought I would want to work, there was a door open and I had an opportunity to work there. So I can just see how he was covering me through every step, through every part of the journey. For me, I'm just grateful because like I said, I can see God. He didn't necessarily have me avoid hardship, 
or avoid pain or avoid trouble, but I feel like he was with me throughout the whole process and reminding me, okay, you're going through this for a reason. You're going through this for your own growth, but you're going through this too because you need to be able to encourage somebody else who's going to go through the same after you and they need to see you as an example that you don't have to become a product of your environment or a product of your upbringing. I'm not denying that there are systemic issues in the world that create challenges and that people have different journeys. But just for me, I'm grateful for having gone through what I went through because I think it gave me a richer experience. It helped me to appreciate things more. And it gave me a strength that I'm still discovering even now at 45 I'm still learning more about myself and trying to figure out how I can be the best me, both for myself and to be a blessing to other people that I come in contact with. Joy, thank you so much for not only sharing your story in detail, but also sharing with us how your experiences of your childhood impacted your experiences and your practices in adulthood. Thanks for that. I do want to ask you, you already started off with a really profound life lesson about how you need not become the product of your circumstances, but I want to see if you have other life lessons that you can share with us as well. I think another life lesson that I briefly touched on was just about it's okay to feel how you feel. It's okay to be discouraged because a lot of people just say, oh, well, just, just brush it off or sometimes we can put forward that toxic positivity where it's okay, I don't want to hear about your troubles, bury it because it's making me uncomfortable and it's okay to feel how you feel. But again, however you can, don't stay there. Leverage help, mm. leverage resources, whether it's a therapist, whether it's medication to regulate your mental health. And if you can, what has helped me is to focus outward. I feel better when I can help somebody else, whether it's doing something tangible for them, like giving them something or just an encouraging word. Like I'm the person that will come up to you in the grocery store and be like, I love your hair. or I love that necklace or I love that outfit. But I just like to do that because the smile on somebody's face when it's an unexpected compliment or an unexpected nice thing that you do for somebody Mm -hmm. um, can also help uplift you when you're in a down spot. And I can't wait to meet you in the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) And then another lesson for me that I am still continuing to learn is that I was put on this earth to fill a joy-sized hole that only I can fill. So I can't be Hamida. I can't be my coworker. I was put on earth to be the only person who can fill that void in this earth. And I'm constantly having to remind myself of that because, you know, with social media, you're looking at all the great things other people are accomplishing. You're looking at all the great things people are doing. And I have to remind myself that I'm here. I'm uniquely me. No one else can tell my story. They might have a similar story, but it's not my story. And only I can have the impact that I was born and put here on earth to have. And so that gives me some comfort and reminds me that I have a responsibility to live that out for myself and for others. That is incredible, Joy. That is a beautiful way to end this dialogue. Thank you for, again, being open, honest. I know you had not planned on this, 
but I am sure glad that you agreed to do it because like we discussed before we got on the interview, that there could be this one person out there who wants to hear exactly what you're saying and that could change their life. So thanks for sharing. And I'm so glad that you came on the show. Thank you so much again for having me. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this dialogue with Joy. First of all, I appreciate Joy for reminding us that we all have our own stories. What's yours? Please reach out to me at sharinglifelessons101 at gmail.com if you would like to share your story with others. As always, here are my key takeaways. One, as Joy so appropriately said, that the pain of being a child of an addict is you struggle watching them go through the struggle but you can't save them because they have to come to the realization that they want something different. As much as you're in it with them, you're suffering with them, you can't help them get out of it. But is that not the case with all kinds of relationships? You may be in a relationship with any kind of addict or someone suffering from mental health disorder or having anger management issues or being a pessimist. In all cases, you can't help them get out of it unless they want something different for themselves. Two, in situations that Joy found herself in, it is so easy to get sad and depressed and discouraged and focus on what you don't have and focus on what you wish things would be like. It's okay to feel those feelings and to feel discouraged. But if possible, don't stay in that place and try to find someone or something to be a support whether that's therapy, whether that's a friend or family to talk to, or you could turn to your spirituality. Three, you don't have to become a product of your environment or of your upbringing. And lastly, we have heard several guests in previous episodes tell us to focus inward. But Joy finds her strength in focusing outward, where she can help others, whether it's doing something tangible for them or even just giving them an encouraging word. As Joy reminded us, we are all on this earth to fill a void that only we can fill. So let's remind ourselves that I am me. I am uniquely me. No one else can be me or tell my story. And only I can have the impact that I was born and put here on earth to have. This brings us to the end of this episode. I will bring you the final episode of season seven next Wednesday. Until then, be happy, be safe, and be well.